when you're faced with a painting, the canvas and you, or the paper and you, and you have to make your own decisions. And that's a personal conversation struggle, which has got nothing to do with rules. Hi, and welcome to episode 107 of Talking with Painters, where Australian painters talk about their lives and art. I'm Maria Stolger, and when I posted on Instagram that I'd be interviewing today's guest, there was a huge response with comments including words like national treasure, legend, and inspiration. They were talking about Guy Warren, and this year not only are there going to be five major shows exhibiting his work across Australia, but in April he'll be turning 100. I met him last week at his studio on Sydney's North Shore and I had a thoroughly enjoyable few hours where he shared with me his recollections from the Great Depression and World War II to changes in the art world in the 50s and 60s as well as his travels to Alice Springs, New Guinea and London. He's been exhibiting for 60 years and although his paintings delve into portraiture and abstraction, much of his work is concerned with the landscape but not as an objective scene to be recorded. He's much more interested in the idea that we humans belong to and are part of that landscape and that idea has echoed in his work throughout the decades. He's had over 50 solo shows, he's won the Archibald Prize, he's received two honorary doctorates, the Order of Australia and the Australia Medal and his work is included in many public and private collections across the world and there have been six survey shows of his work which must be some sort of record. We met at one of Guy's studios at his home and I started by asking where he grew up and what memories he had of art as a child. I can tell you where I grew up. It was Goulburn, New South Wales. Uh, a city that's about, what, in those days, probably two or three hours out of Sydney by train south. Um, uh, art, there was no art at all that I can remember in Goulburn. Uh, the family moved to Sydney when I was probably, I would guess, about six, seven or eight. Uh, so most of my childhood memories are about Sydney. And inevitably, of course, Sydney summers and Sydney beaches and school. And uh, I was a red-headed kid. My mother came from a Scottish family and my dad was a, an Englishman. So I wasn't designed by whoever to lay on Sydney beaches in the sun and try to get brown. You know, I could do that all my life and never get brown. So I used to get redder and redder and burnt and blistered and God knows what. Uh, and now I pay the price, of course, because I have to go to the dermatologist regularly and get things cut off or burnt off. So Delighted as I am to have thought how lucky I was to spend my childhood on Sydney beaches, I rather wish I hadn't. What about so? What about your parents? What uh, what did they? Well, do? they were both musicians. Um, Dad was a pianist who came out to Australia probably when he was about twenty, I would think. I haven't actually researched that. And he came, he said, with the first group of people who brought talking pictures to the back blocks of New South Wales. So probably on the back of a truck or an old car or whatever was possible, and a dray, I suppose, mm -hmm. they went around from country town to country town 
and um, showed these new films in Country Town. They were all, they were all silent films, of course, and he was the pianist who used whatever piano was available in whatever town they were in, whatever um, you know, hall they were in, and whether all those pianos were well-tuned, I would think was very doubtful. <laughs> anyway, he was obviously a very good pianist, and um, he was the pianist who created the music for the silent movies on the spot. Some of the music, I think, was uh, written down and presented with the film um, to the pianist, and sometimes I think he just extemporized and uh, played the what he thought was the appropriate music for the goodies as they chased the baddies across the silver <laughs> screen. So he just improvised? Yeah, I think he improvised a lot of it. And when they were in Goulburn, Mum played violin to his piano in the cinema. And so did you learn a inst- musical instrument? I studied piano very briefly, only for a year or so, and I think it was probably one night a week. And like most kids, I didn't do enough exercise, uh, practice. Uh, I don't think I liked it all that much. And um, then I had a bit of an accident with a tram coming home from piano lessons and mum refused to let me go anymore. And I was probably about eight, I suppose. So I stopped. I still fiddle with a piano, but I don't really play it properly. Well, it's... You know, it's interesting to see that you, you left school at 14, that, that, and that coincides with the Great Depression. Well, that's why I left school, yeah. Mm. Uh, my dad left his job, well, lost his job because the talkies came in exactly at the depth of the Depression. So every cinema in the world that had musicians playing for their silent movies, suddenly all those guys were out of work. Mm. And Dad was one of them. And it was a rough time. He had a, they both had a very tough time after that. Mm. So, yeah, I think I was persuaded to leave school and get a job at 14. Uh, it seemed the appropriate thing to do, certainly from their point of view. Mm. I regretted very much. I had really little choice, I guess. Um, I had an older brother who stayed on at school, um, but the Great Depression changed all our lives and um, in many ways, in many ways perhaps the benefit f- personally for me might have been better than I would ever have expected uh, because leaving school at 14, having to get a job, not knowing what job one wanted to get, Uh, by sheer accident because the family knew somebody who knew somebody, found there was a job for a young boy available on the Bulletin newspaper, which was a weekly, good weekly in those days, and they wanted um, a proofreader's assistant. He's the guy who reads from the original manuscript while the proofreader corrects all proofs from the printer. So it was a good introduction to journalism, a good introduction to printing. I mean, printing as in publishing. Mm. Um, it was just a good background, particularly, I think, in um, in journalism because they, they had some very good articles in the magazine, a lot of rubbish as well, but some very good articles, um, good writers, good poems, good stories, and good drawings the, the old bulletin in those days was full of joke drawings. And so once a week, all the freelance artists would come in with their new jokes and 
show them to the arts editor. He was the only one permanently on staff. And then I'd hear great roars of laughter from their office. (laughs) And then they'd all come out with a slip of paper in their hands and they'd go to the front desk and exchange that for a cheque. And then they'd go out to George Street and go around the corner to the pub next door. And I thought, God, that's a pretty bloody good life, isn't it? (laughs) So I thought I'd try the same thing. I was writing small articles for the bulletin. In fact, I found one the other day, I'll show it to you if you're interested. When I was about 21, I wrote an article about the Archibald complaining that all the people who won the Archibald had won it five times before and it was time they (laughs) gave young blokes a a chance. Um, I was about 21 at the time, I think. Anyway, um, to get back to the drawings and the art editor, I probably pestered him with these drawings of mine and he was a patient man, but one day he obviously wasn't patient. And he looked, took the drawing off me and said, you don't do it like that, you do it like this. And he was a bit cross. And then he grabbed me by the arm, took me out of the office down into George Street, up George Street and round a corner about a block further up, can't remember the name of the street, and took me up into a, an old building, an old colonial building to about the second floor, and there were big swing doors there, I remember, and he sort of threw me through the doors, and there was an old bloke sitting inside in a big room, and he said to this old bloke, teach this kid to draw, and he buzzed off and left me there, and the fellow in the room was a fellow called J.S. Watkins, who was a, a painter at the time, a published um, trustee of the art gallery, a good painter who'd studied in Paris, uh, not a great painter, but he knew how to paint and he was a good teacher. And he ran a little private school of his own. So I could afford one night a week. And then after a year, I guess I could afford two nights a week. And then after another year, I could afford two nights a week and Saturday afternoons as well. So by the time I was 20 or 21, I could draw pretty so, well uh, so, and yeah. paint reasonably well. There's a mm. little self-portrait I did, which will be, I think, in this show that's coming up at the National Art School in a few weeks' time. Mm. And that's a self-portrait of me at about 19. It's in black and white, but it's it's a good little painting. Right. So he, he taught you um, the basics? like uh, He pers- taught drawing, and uh, he's very strict. He wouldn't let you paint um, until you'd been drawing for a year or so. And then you could only paint in black and white, and then he'd let you paint in colour. So it was a good basic training. It was a skill training. It wasn't, you know, nothing about art with a capital A or nothing about ideas, but it was a valid training, uh, training in in techniques, I guess, and how to do it. And I'm very grateful for it. What it did mean was that uh, when I uh, volunteered for the army in, when I was about 20 or 21, uh, I could draw pretty well. So while other guys were bored out of their minds playing cards or wondering what the hell to do, I was able to draw them, and that was an enormous yeah. help. Well, that's a very interesting time as well, and that you mm. uh, when you volunteered for the AIF, and you had to do a um, a training course in Northern Queensland. Not immediately, but I did subsequently did a training course at a place called Canungra, which is on the border of New South Wales and Queensland. It's rich 
rainforest country, hills, mountains, ravines, rushing waters, thick rainforest, the sort of thing more or less that I guess one would expect to encounter in New Guinea, although in fact New Guinea was much, much thicker. Uh, so it was tough training. I didn't mind it. I quite enjoyed it. I'd done a lot of camping as a kid with my brother, uh, so it didn't worry me. I think some of the guys found it a bit tough. Some of those sketchbooks are now with the War Museum, mm. um, but I still have some. I've got some sketchbook, a big, fairly big sketchbook left over from New Guinea, which I think will be in the exhibition at the National Art oh, School. That'll be fantastic mm. to see that. And that was that was fun. I used to draw the local peoples, you know, the indigenous native peoples. So that was during the war you that were in New Guinea? That was during the war. Yeah. Mm. So during the war, did you come across any conflict or anything like that? No, I was very lucky. Uh, I ended up in the island of Bougainville, New Guinea briefly and then Bougainville. And my unit was a small uh, supply depot platoon. Uh, once you're in the army, you've got no choice about what you do or where you do it. You're just a figure, and if they want a body in some particular place or 20 bodies or 50 bodies, uh, some clerk somewhere ticks a lot of names on a... and that's where you go and that's what you do. You don't have any choice about it. So I found myself in the supply depot platoon in uh, Bougainville, and our job was to get food ready for and then deliver it to troops in various parts of the island. And that could be fun, uh, taking, troop, taking food up the coast in, um, in an old boat and getting off in odd places and taking the food in an old truck through tracks that had just been carved out of the jungle, um, ending up with infantry blokes who were somewhere in the front line who were more than anxious to... And chucking work out of... Chucking food out of planes too, of course. The old biscuit bombers, uh, they were used to take food to forward troops. they just take the uh, doors off the plane, you stood inside and chucked the, chucked the food out. Oh, so you did that as well? Yes, oh, occasionally. Right. I nearly fell out one day, but that's another story. <laughs> and uh, so at this stage, you're... Your folk, main focus is drawing, I take it. Oh, yes, it. I was drawing whatever, in whatever time I had left. Mm, that must have been, yeah, must have been a good way to pass the time. It was. Yeah. Great. Artists are very lucky. I mean, we've spoken about this lately with other artists very recently. Uh, we were lucky during the lockdown. You know, most people hated the lockdown. I mean, most artists loved it. <laughs> yeah, nobody right. interrupted you. you know what I mean, <laughs> I did more work in that during that lockdown than I've done in years. Yeah, wonderful, yeah. wonderful. It, yeah, it's amazing. And there's no pressure to have to feel like you have to be anywhere. No, no, you just... As one of the artists said, well, you know, this, artists do that all the time. You know, they're all in lockdown, always. Yes. You just want to be in your studio. I know. Well, with podcasting, you know, I listen to various podcasts and often they, for interviews they would be asking the guests, oh, and how has it been? And I, and I found that question's been totally useless in my podcast because everybody goes, oh, well, nothing's really changed. <laughs> but it has been an interesting time. But let's – um, it's interesting that the drawing is not for the – for drawing sake, in a way, I mean, what I'm oh, saying it is, is both. Yes, yeah. it is both. I think uh, I think 
making marks on a flat surface is a primal urge. Ever since some idiot picked up a burnt stick from a fireplace and made a mark on a cave wall, people have been doing that ever since. It is a primal urge to make a mark on a flat surface. Um, I mean, there are other primal urges, and dance must be one of them, and storytelling must be one. Um, music, in some sort of way, must be one. Uh, there are basic human urges primal urges that humankind have always felt the need to perform. Um, when you make a mark on a wall, as the first guy did with his burnt stick, it was at one and the same time the most abstract of things to do because it didn't mean anything, and also the most human of things to do because what it did mean was that I am here and I am human. So if anybody else came around he would know that there were other humans there. So it's a very human thing to do, and a totally abstract thing to do. But then, of course, what happened was his partner probably said to him, look, instead of doing those stupid marks on the wall, if you put a couple of ears on that and a tail and a couple of legs, it would look like those animals you tell me you're out chasing all day <laughs> when you leave me at home here to look after the kids. So, you know, so it became then more than just a mark on a wall. It became a way of making contact with your world. So that's really where landscape painting came from. It's about making contact with your world. After the war, you came back to Australia and there was, a, there was something called the Commonwealth Rehabilitation Training Scheme at that point, which helped people get back into employment. Yeah. I think other countries probably did the same. It offered ex-servicemen and women the opportunity to either complete courses which had been interrupted because of the war or to start a course at a university or wherever so long as, of course, one, one qualified for doing so. Um, so I, I didn't want... Uh, I was offered the chance to into the university and doing a fine arts degree, but I wanted to do something much more practical. So I went to the, um, um, the, art, the only art school, the only public art school in Sydney at the time, was what was then called East Sydney Tech, which was the national... now the national art school... So after the war, uh, on the day of discharge, I remembered very clearly two other guys and I went into town, had a beer at one of the pubs in town, probably several beers, and then I walked up the hill to the National Art School and enrolled. Uh, so the day I left the army, I enrolled at the National Art School. And that was one of the Again, one of the great lucky experiences of my life. It was full of ex-service men and women. Uh, and some of them, well, all of them had probably wasted five years of their young lives. And let's be honest about this. Sometimes the most important years of your life are when you're in your 20s. You're more, you're braver, you do ra irrational things. Uh, and that sometimes, of course, means you produce your better work. Mm. Um, the most exciting works are frequently done in your young 20s, I think. Anyway, um, that's a theory on my part. Mm. Um, mm. What, because it's, you're not overthinking it? Yeah, I think you're braver as a young man, which is why you go to war instead of doing other things. 
Um, yeah, I think you're braver. Take risks. Um, so all these guys were there. They'd all had five years of war. They were lucky to have survived, I guess. Uh, they wanted to paint. That's all they wanted to do, or sculpt. Uh, and they were there with a passionate desire to reclaim time. Mm. Uh, and there were some great people there who now are major names in Australian art. And the same thing, of course, happened in Melbourne and in Brisbane too, I guess. Uh, so I was lucky to have a group of guys there who I thought were very good, and I probably learned as much from them by osmosis, not by being lectured, but just simply by watching and looking and thinking. And Who were the ones that you think of the most? Oh, I was friendly with two guys particularly. One, oddly enough, was an Englishman named Tony Tuxon, And Tony had been a Spitfire pilot and he was one of the Spits that had been sent out to help protect Darwin. Um, The other guy was a fellow called Klaus Friedeberger, whom people in Australia have rarely heard about. And he was one of those Jewish boys whose family had managed to get him out of Berlin early enough and um, sent him to stay with an uncle, I think, in UK in London and when the war came of course these guys were interned because they all had German passports they were seen as being German uh, which is pretty bloody silly but that's how it was and then the Brits finally put them on a boat and sent a lot of them to Canada and the boat I understand was torpedoed on the way and a lot of the young blokes were killed lost They put another lot onto another boat and sent them off. And Klaus and another good friend, Kyle, called Erwin Fabian, were on the second lot of the second boat. And Klaus said it wasn't until the weather kept getting warmer and warmer he realised they were heading in the wrong direction. (laughs) And they ended up in Sydney, put on a train, and sent to Hay of all places. And the Australian government had built a compound at Hay to have these these <laughs> prisoners. These, I mean, there's a book about this and there are films about it, but they created a little enclave of European culture in the middle of the Hay Plains. <laughs> and in the end, to their credit, the Australian government realised how bloody stupid all this was, and so they let them go on one condition, that they could join the Australian... They could either go back to Europe, which meant dodging U-boats on the way, if you wanted to take that risk, or you could stay in Australia. But if you did, you had to join the Australian Army as a la- in the Labour Corps, not as a fighting member. But at the end of the war, people like that were then seen as honoured Australian ex-servicemen because they, had, they were ex-army. So Klaus ended up at the same art school that I did, and I became very friendly with him. So he was a great help. Yeah. In fact, I've just been... Just he died only six months ago, and I've just had a. I've just been emailing his his widow literally last night, last evening, and he was a very good painter. He went back after after art school. He went back to Europe, to London, and been there ever since. Isn't 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 and he a very the good one? Painter. Yeah, isn't he the one that you hitchhiked around Australia with? Yes, yes, he is. What yeah. was that experience like? <laughs> Life is full of experiences that one is grateful for. Um, 
That's a silly thing to say, but some experiences one isn't grateful for, I guess, but there are certain things that make a difference to you. And sometime in the last year at the art school, Klaus, who obviously had always intended to go back to Europe, said to me, he's never seen Australia, we'd like to see the centre of Australia, why don't we just hitchhike there? I mean, bless his heart, he wouldn't have known how far it was. <laughs> so I said, OK, why don't we? We put packs on our backs and a sketchbook and uh, caught a train as far as it went out of Sydney. I think it went to Hornsby in those days. That was as far as the electric train went. We got out of, on the road outside Hornsby and uh, started thumbing our, our lifts and some bloke in a battered old truck stopped and said... Where are you heading for, mate? And I said, Darwin. He said, geez, he said, I'll take you as far as Woi Woi, which, <laughs> which is a few miles north of Sydney. <laughs> so we went to Woi Woi and uh, we just kept on going. Oh, gee, that's a, what, so you just had a, did you have a map? Uh, no, 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 no. <laughs> I mean, we just went north. <laughs> we slept on beaches or in old houses or under houses or wherever we could. And, uh, How far a, did you get? Did you get to Darwin? Got as far as um, no, we never got to Darwin. We got as far as Townsville, and then we headed west from Townsville uh, to the road that goes north south through Tennant Creek. And we got to Tennant Creek, which is in the middle of the Northern Territory, and we should have headed north from there to Darwin, but we were getting worried about the time away from school from the art school. Mm. So we headed south from Tennant Creek and we got to uh, Alice Springs and stayed in Alice for a few days. I mean, this was all new country to us, to it's me amazing. too. And it, certainly to Klaus. It was, it was the centre, uh, the, the centre of Australia, the red centre. We'd never seen anything like that. And were you drawing? Did you have a sketchbook all that time? Mm. Did you, so is that what we you had a sketchbook and we did some small oils. I don't know why we took oils with us, which was a dumb thing to do, but we did some small oils, which we had in our packs. Uh, that's the reason I was talking to this uh, woman in London, Klaus's widow. She has his drawings, his paintings that he did, and she wanted to know where she should send them give them to, she wants to give them to the National Art Gallery or to the State Gallery or wherever. Well, I tried to do the same and I was disappointed. I offered my little paintings to the National Gallery. They have a lot of my work already, but mm. they didn't want them and took one only and sent the rest back to me, which irritated me because I wanted them kept together. I didn't want them split. And she had a vision of my little paintings and his little paintings going together to a gallery of some sort. Mm. It must change from time to time. As to, I mean, I don't know how curate or how galleries decide what goes in their collections, but they must have different people at different times making those decisions. Yeah, they do, and they have other criteria, which doesn't necessarily mean they choose the best work. They might indeed choose work which fits into some sort of predetermined structure, history, uh, so, you know, I don't know how they work. 
So it might not be the work that you think is your best work. Yeah, that's interesting, Mm. isn't it? Um, Well, let's let's talk about the time after um, art school, and that is, you know, you met your wife, Joy, Mm. um, who was also an artist. She was a ceramicist, and you went to London. Yeah, well, I'd always wanted to go to London, I guess probably because I'd grown up with stories of London because my dad was a Londoner. Um, Joy was an English girl. And she came from not from London, but from the Lake District on the north northwest of England. And she was happy to go back and enjoy investigate London uh, as I was. And it was again one of the best things I've ever done. I guess it was just it was the well, it was nineteen fifty, so it was. After the beginnings of abstract expressionism and right in the heart of the 50s of abstract expressionism. And from the National Art School, which was a bit like J.S. Watkins' school, it was very much uh, embodied in traditional drawing and painting. You know, the tradition that comes from Leonardo, this is how you do it. And, you know, we even did in those days uh, anatomy, so you learnt how the muscles worked and uh, because how they worked determined how the body looked. So that was all pretty basic stuff. And then I got to London and saw these... I mean, it was just a whole new world. I saw the first shows of the American Abstract Expressionists and they were... They were just a revelation. Must have been a amazing. Total revelation. Yeah. So it, it just bumped me out of my cosy little previous corner, I think. Well, so you were in your 30s at that point. I must have been 30, yeah. Yeah. And so did you So you were working there in, in sort of art-related jobs? Is that what you did? Well, as everybody does when you first go to London, uh, you look for a job of any sort. Uh, I walked around the corner and found a bloke who was making frames, a frame-making establishment named Robert Savage. So I'd never made a frame in my life, but I walked in there and said, can I get a job? Um, And he said, you can start tomorrow morning. So (laughs) tomorrow morning I went in and he pointed down into the basement, down the stairs, and it wasn't making frames, it was polishing... uh, the edges of the frames it was a very dusty place in the basement so I walked down the stairs and there were a cluster of faces in the the bottom of the stairs in this gesso dust and as I got closer to them they all materialized and I could see real faces and one of them stepped forward and he said with a very strong Australian accent we heard there was an Australian called Warren starting today and I thought it might have been that bastard Alan Warren. And I'd never heard of Alan Warren. I found out later that Alan Warren had been a teacher and a critic in Melbourne. Oh, right. And, and the young fellow who said that to me was Fred Williams. Oh, was it? <laughs> Freddie probably had had a bad run in yeah. with Alan Warren. I don't know. I never heard the basic of that. Uh, so did you have much to do with him in London? Yes, he gave me two bits of advice, which I unfortunately didn't take. The first was, don't stay away too long. And Fred took his own advice there, came back after a couple of years, and um, by the time I came home, he'd made a name for himself. Joy and I stayed there for eight years. We had family. We started having kids. 
So we stayed far too long. I should have come back. What do you think? What, why do you think it's good advice to come back earlier? Because uh, when you're young, uh, you're vigorous, you're eager, you're keen, you've got more energy, um, you work harder, you make uh, contacts with people, your work is seen. By the time I came back eight years later, I hadn't shown as a professional artist before. Uh, nobody knew me. Uh, and at, by the time I came back, I was about 40. Um, and you have to start then at 40. Now, it takes a while to get yourself known. And how did you manage to do that? I put my work in every damn show I could find. Uh, I'm not very good at making contacts. I think other people do that much better than I um, so all I could do was to put my work into shows and hope somebody noticed them after a while. And they did. You know, the name becomes familiar. Mm. And mm. then you start winning the odd prize, if you're lucky. Talking about winning prizes, you were uh, recognised in 1985 winning the Archibald Prize with your um, wonderful portrait of Bert Flugelman, mm. uh, who was a friend of yours, I think, at National Arts yes, School, he was. wasn't he? Mm. Um, what was that experience like? Does that make a difference in your career? Well, I've just had this email from uh, the people who are organising the um, 100th anniversary for the Archibald, and they asked exactly the same question. And look, I have to be honest, it didn't mean a damn thing. Nowadays, I think, for some reason, I think uh, Ed Capon, when he was director of the... Art Gallery of New South Wales was very good at drumming up publicity, mm. and somehow in his during his tenure he made the Archibald into something which was immensely exciting, so that people from the far distant suburbs of Sydney felt they had to come into the Art Gallery to see the show. I think in the early days I found when I won it, it didn't make a slightest bit of difference. I don't think anybody even noticed that I had it. Friends did, of course, obviously, and other artists did, but no, it didn't so, mean a damn so there thing. Wasn't a and the money, of course, was a lot less in those yeah, days than it right. is now. Yeah, that's right. That's right, it was. It was a hell of a lot less. It sort of doubled at some point, I think. Oh, it was 10000 when I won it, $10,000, yeah. and it's 100000 now. That's right, that's mm. right. And what, they didn't have a huge media pack there on the day of the announcement? They had they? a reasonable media pack, but nothing like it is now. Yeah, yeah. No, it does. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it, how the prestige of the Archibald yeah. has changed over the years, isn't it? It is, it's interesting. It? Mm. Um, Look, I'm happy to have won it. <laughs> yeah. It all helped at the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And uh, also, but you've also got, uh, you, you're known for being a great teacher as well. You're I'm a, not sure about that. Well, I'll tell you something. You've been mentioned in the podcast a few times, but I remember Joanna Logue in particular uh, telling me, because she was, you were her teacher at some point, and she said to me that uh, she had some great teachers and they, really influenced her and one thing that you had said to her that always stuck with her was that not every painting has to be a masterpiece. <laughs> <laughs> and you know Very what? sound advice. <laughs> I think that is really good advice. Yeah. And, I mean, I, I get the impression that, that you, when you're teaching, you weren't just teaching, you know, perspective no, or colour or anything like that. It's not just how to put the paint on. It's about a lot of other things. But that... There is with a student. I don't remember ever saying that. <laughs> well, there you are. Good advice. <laughs> it is good advice. How did you find your years of teaching? Oh, okay. I don't 
despite what you said, I don't think I'm a good teacher. Uh, I think, um, I mean, I know nothing about the theory of teaching. I didn't do a course in how to be a good teacher. Uh, I'd play it by ear like I paint, I suppose. Um, I don't know. I'd much rather be a painter than a teacher. <laughs> Let's go back to your return to Australia because you were saying how exciting the 50s were in, in London and the abstract expressionists were on the scene and it was a changing time. But you, when you came back to Australia, I think you're a bit disappointed, I've, uh, I've read. Yeah, I thought Sydney was very dull, uh, unbelievably dull after London. I wondered why the hell I'd bothered to come back. I painted, the first painting I did when I came back from London in Sydney was a big black abstract, and I wonder if there was something significant in that, which has often enough just been bought by the Canberra Museum. Yeah, that's right. It's called Prisoner, isn't it, I think? Yeah, and I wonder if there's something significant about the name, (laughs) the title. That's very odd. You don't know what the hell you're doing half the time. Well, was it the? Were you sort of going and seeing what was happening in the galleries? What was it like in the sixties? Was it a small scene here, or what in Sydney? Well, I th- not not necessarily small. No smaller than it had been before. It was reasonably healthy, but I just thought all the paintings were looking awfully dull. Uh, they weren't as exciting as they look. London in the fifties meant that all the British painters were getting back. After the war, all the galleries were opening again. Exciting things were happening. The French, the Italians, the Germans were showing in London. Uh, the Americans were showing their first abstract expressionist works. So it was booming. You know, mm. there was every Saturday morning I'd go around looking at work. Uh, by that time, I'd got myself a good job, an art job. Uh, so I was busy during the week, but I used to paint at night, as I've always done, and weekends um, and London was very exciting. Sydney was dull as hell but there is something else that was significant. Um, When I was in London I tried to paint uh, first of all I mean you're in London what the hell do you paint? Uh, I tried to draw and paint London and I realized very quickly that I wasn't a Londoner and other people have done it much better than I. I tried to paint the English landscape and I painted some reasonable paintings, but it wasn't my landscape, you know. It wasn't the land... I mean, I'd hitchhiked through Alice Springs. I'd I'd slept on every bit of soil from here to Alice Springs and back again. I knew the land. I'd slept on it. (laughs) I'd stumbled over it. And the English landscape was beautiful and sweet and gorgeous and looked like a park. And it wasn't my landscape. So in desperation, and this is the thing that intrigues me, what impels you to do this? I don't know. I started painting my memories of New Guinea. Now, that's pretty odd, isn't it? Isn't that interesting? That's very odd. And it was particularly about the... I'd been been intrigued about the New Guineans, how they decorate themselves. Everything you gave them, they'd put in their hair or put on their body. And... um, I've told this story so many times that some people, including you, and said, for God's sake, find other stories. <laughs> um, I was painting, I was drawing a big black guy, the New Guinea guys in Bougainville, 
the, the guys in Bougainville are the blackest in the South Pacific. And I used to pay them with cigarettes or tobacco or something. This time I had nothing to pay him with. Um, I went into my tent and I found a tin of talcum powder which the Comfort Fund had sent because of skin disease. Nobody ever used it and I never used it. So I got the talcum powder and came out and gave it to him. And he poured it into his hand and he made these wonderful white marks all over his very black body. And I thought, gee, that's fantastic. You know, it really was. The first thing he did was to make these wonderful big white marks on his body. So when I was in London, I was painting the peoples of Bougainville in New Guinea. And I thought after a while, it's really about making a statement about where you are. Given that the country was so incredibly rich, textured, violent in its in its visual aspects, that by the time you decorate yourself, you're almost making a statement about belonging to the land, being part of it. And then um, I saw, we had a little black and white television set, and I saw a documentary of some bloke who'd, it was a BBC documentary, some bloke had been to New Guinea, to the highlands of New Guinea, and made a documentary of the dance festival at Mount Hagen, and dancers from all over the South Pacific come to Mount Hagen, and they have this mad dance festival, and their costumes are just so incredibly um, creative. Decorations of mud, flowers, anything, bird feathers, just incredibly inventive. And I thought, God, that's marvellous. So I had a bit more pizzazz in those days than perhaps I have now. I wrote to the BBC and said, I've been watching this documentary of yours and I'm a young Australian painter painting memories, painting in London, painting memories of New Guinea. Could I buy some of your photographs? Because they're great memory jerks. And... They probably thought, what a crumb this bloke is, you know. So they might have passed it around for all I know. But anyway, a week later, I got a ring from somebody who said he couldn't... He was interested in what I was doing. He couldn't sell me any photographs, but he could quite happy to lend me some. And he introduced himself over the phone. He said his name was David Attenborough <laughs> and would I like to come around for a drink. Oh, how amazing. And so he gave you the photographs or...? Uh, he lent me photographs and then when I'd done some work with them and with my own drawings and my own memory, I invited him and his wife round to our flat for drinks and offered him a painting. Oh, um, right. I was having a show in London at a small gallery. So I said I was having the show and, uh, you know, would he like to have one? I said, thank you. I gave him his photographs back and offered him a painting. It's in this book of mine here now. Oh, it was in a Searching for Gaia book, yes, yes. And I've been in touch with him once or twice ever since. Uh, I mean, I asked him if he could get me a photograph of the painting that I gave him at the time, and I remember ringing him up and thanking him for sending me the photograph. And I said, how are you going now? You know, are you still managing to do everything? And I do remember him saying, oh, yes, he said, you know, everything is going all right. He said, mind you, he said, I am finding it a little bit more difficult 
to climb trees. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he's amazing. Yeah, he's he? great. He yeah. Great. Well, it's interesting also. It reminds me, um, you know, uh, when you came back from London, uh, another artist that uh, you have said that yeah, uh, yeah. that excited you, even though yeah, you found the, the only one I thought in Sydney in Australia who was interesting was Ian Fairweather. And because Ian Fairweather was doing what I've been trying to do, he was putting figures in the landscape. Somehow they became part of the painting and part of the landscape at the same time. Not a figure as a gesture on the landscape to give it scale, but a figure that was part of the landscape and part of the painting at the same time. Mm. And I think he did that very well. Well, that's interesting because that painting I talked about that was in the National Gallery of Australia of yours, that um, guy at Badgeries, that gives me that impression. Oh, good. That I'm glad you, it does. Yeah, the yeah. figure really is Sometimes part they of that. work and sometimes they don't. Yeah. And tell me, what, what you actually met Ian Fairweather. Yes, well, one, I got a job after I came back in an advertising agency, and uh, which I didn't like, but I stayed with it for a few years, two, three, four years. Um, May holidays, we put the kids in a caravan I borrowed from somebody, and we went up north, and I found myself um, opposite Bribey Island, and the pennies dropped. I thought, my God, this is where Fairweather lives. So I drove over to Bribey Island and thought, I'm going to meet this guy if I can. So I went to the local store and said, do you know where there's a painter on the island called Ian Fairweather? And they said, oh, yes, you go down such and such a road until you find a tree leaning in a particular direction. You go under that tree and you'll find a track and you follow the track and you'll find his place. So uh, I'd heard that he wasn't all that, familiar or friendly with kids and women and I'd also heard that he liked a glass of wine so I bought a bottle of wine I dropped my wife and the kids down on the nearest beach I found the tree that lent in a certain way I found the track and I was about to give up because it was just a wallaby track I thought it was going to end up nowhere and then I stumbled into this clearing with two very very rough tents in it one was a shelter tent and one was a living in tent and with buckets all the way around it, which is where he kept his, where he cat caught his water. That's the only water he had. And there was an old something or other hanging over the door of the tent. I didn't quite know what to say, but I think I yelled out, "Are you there, Mister Fairweather?" Which is a very <laughs> English thing to say, I suppose. And there was a mumble inside, and after a while, the uh, something was pulled off the front of the tent, and he stumbled out. And I noticed at the time that he was wearing pants and that his pyjama pants were showing underneath the bottom of his pants. So he'd probably pulled his pants on over his pyjama pants. Yeah. And uh, I said, I'm an Australian, I'm a Sydney, Sydney painter, I admire your work. And I held my bottle up and said, I wondered if you'd like to have a drink with me. <laughs> and he said, yes, yes, yes. So we sat down there and I was there for five hours just talking to him. And suddenly at the end of our five hours, I thought, my God, I've left my wife and two kids down on the beach. <laughs> so I had to excuse myself. He wanted me to stay longer. Oh, you must have had, found a lot of things in common to talk yeah, about. Oh, yeah. He was a great, great old guy. Old guy. My God, he was younger than I am now. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, how amazing. So that's, you know, you meet people like this through life. They're the ones that you remember. Yeah, well, it's interesting also you you sort him out. So you do have to, if you want to make connections or if you want to meet people, you do have to make an effort yourself, well, don't you? Well, I'm very bad at doing that. I know other people who do it very, very much better. Uh, but I did it with the BBC and I did it with him. And they're two good examples I should have followed more. Yeah, I mean, I'm a bit like that too. I don't, I mean, this is different. This is a formal situation where I can, I'm hiding behind the podcast and I can meet you. But ordinarily, I don't feel comfortable just cold calling no, someone. It's yes, very exactly. hard to do yeah. that. It depends know. how brash you are. And I'm, yeah. I've never felt brash. I've never felt that confident. Confidence is the thing that we all suffer from, lack of confidence. All painters I've ever read about talk about the same things. Confidence, lack of confidence. You're never sure. There are no rules to this game, for God's sake. There are no rules. So you stumble along. You know, you can forget the rules. That's something that art schools talk about. But when you're faced with a painting, the canvas are new or the paper are new and you have to make your own decisions. And that's a personal conversation struggle which has got nothing to do with rules and nothing to do with what you should be doing or what other people think you should be doing. There are two bits of paper pinned on the kitchen wall there you can see later. Um, they're quotes from various people. One's a quote from uh, Philip Guston, an American painter I've admired very much. And uh, in one of his lectures, he says, um, doubt is the acute awareness of the existence of alternatives. Mm. Of course, you always know, think, feel that there's a better way to have done it. Yeah. And the other one is by uh, Bob Hughes. And Bob's a bit more blunt than not quite as subtle as uh, the other guy. And Bob, in one of his books, says, um, the greater the artist the greater the doubt. Perfect confidence is given to the lesser artist as a consolation prize. <laughs> <laughs> well, I suppose, I mean, this is something you've talked about before. If you are too confident or if you are, you're going, you, you probably will end up painting the same painting over and over again. I refuse to do that. I've always refused to paint the same painting for the rest of my life. I know people who do that. Uh, and that's once you get a reputation that's very good for the bank balance. I think it is very bad for the soul, mm. and I'd rather keep my I'd rather keep my soul in good order. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So I don't. I'm quite happy to paint something different any time if I want to do it. Yeah. If it seems the right thing to do for me. I'm very interested in artists' preferences for oil or acrylic. Do you have a specific preference? Oh, they both have their virtues. Uh, acrylic, I find, dries very quickly, which is useful. It also, once it's dry, it's difficult to match if you want to change some colour. It's difficult to match it against the tone of the next colour. Yeah. Oil has a lush, meaty quality to it, uh, which I like. Uh, oh, they're both possible. You know, they're both fun to work with and there are lots of things you can add to them to alter their consistency or to make them run or fix stay still or whatever mm. 
Do you feel also with watercolours that... Oh, watercolour's quite different. It has a life of its own. <laughs> yeah, in what, in what way do you think? Oh, uh, watercolour's lovely. It's a sensuous thing uh, because I always work on a wet paper and so the watercolour has a life of its own. When you put the paint on, it spreads. And so you can find the colour that moves from the centre of the paper out towards the edges sometimes. And that's very odd. And then I thought, well, you could, if you can do that with wet paper, you can do it with wet canvas. So then I started painting on wet canvas and letting the colour find its own path across the canvas. And then I started, because I'd been doing the same with paper, I started folding the canvas. And uh, so it really was an exploration into the quality of the material. You know, canvas, you can fold, for God's sake. Why does it have to be flat? You know, you can, you can hang it, you can fold it, you can make it look like a curtain yeah. and paint on it. Um, or you can paint on it first and then fold it. So, I've, you know, I, over the years I've played around with ideas like that. The same with with paper. I made paper at a paper mill in Hobart. And I heard the other day that they've been showing a few of those at the Art Gallery of New South Wales, which I obviously gave them or sold them years ago. Because when you make paper, it's like clay. You can do anything with it. You can fold it, you can squash it, you can tear it up, you can do anything. So it's a matter of finding out what the material can do. So these days, do you find yourself painting most days? Yeah, particularly during the COVID period. But unfortunately, at the moment, I keep being interrupted by people like you. <laughs> Delightful as it may be. <laughs> I think you've probably got people lining up out the door. Which comes... Well, it's nothing to do with me. It's because I'm 100, for God's sake. It's no more than that. Journalists are journalists all over the world, whether they're working on paper or in film. If they see a good story, they grab hold of it. And that's all it is at the moment. I'm 100, there's a good story there. Well, i tell you what another good story is, and that is that you uh, have five shows coming up this <laughs> I, year. I <laughs> and i tell you what, at the best of times, I think an artist would be totally overwhelmed and exhausted with the I thought am. of that. So what is your secret to have the energy and vitality for this forthcoming year? Well, people ask me that and I usually say a whiskey every night. <laughs> I don't know. Good luck, good genes, I don't know. And how is it, how do you feel about this show that's coming up at, at King Street Gallery? Um, it's opening, I think, in next yeah, week. Yeah, well, it's, it's different. Actually, the three shows that are coming up in Sydney will probably give a good overview of everything I do. And that's better than a single show. The one at uh, the Lane Cove Gallery is going to be a survey, so that has work going back as well as going forward. The King on William show has mostly new work. If, the, if there's anything old in it, it'll only be a year old, so it's all new work. Um, the show at the National Art School is drawings and drawings only, mm. only drawings, and they go back to sketchbooks. I know she borrowed one that was dated in the 30s. 
Wow, so, that's going to be so exciting! Yeah, I, I think that's, I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, that's very well. Much. That's the inaugural show of the um, the National Centre for Drawing, which be, has been established by the National Art School. Yeah. So I'm really looking forward to that. So night. am I. Yeah, so yeah, am I very much. It should yeah. be a lot of fun. And I think the last one this year is Nicholas Thompson in Nicholas, November. Nicholas in Melbourne. Yeah, well, he was wanted. He wanted one in the same time, and I said, oh, you know, enough is enough is enough. <laughs> I, I just can't manage another one. So I've I've asked Nick if I can have that in December, and he's agreed yeah. to that. Oh, right. And there's another show that the University of Wollongong is turning on. Yes, that's right. Well, that's a separate show. Altogether. Yes, yes. So, so it's going to be a jam-packed year. Well, Guy, I'd like to thank you for this um, wonderful interview today. I really enjoyed it. <laughs> I've enjoyed it. You've asked some good questions. <laughs> That's because you're a painter. (laughs) No, it is. It is. You know the right questions to ask. Mm. Thank you. What a great artist. There is so much more we could have talked about, but I hope you come away knowing a little bit more about Guy Warren. Go to the website, talkingwithpainters.com, for a list of those five exhibitions coming up, starting with King Street Gallery's show, which opens on 16 March 2021. You can also see on the website images of the works and links to things we've talked about in this episode. I'll also be uploading a video I filmed of Guy um, that day, which I'll be posting on the YouTube channel in the next few weeks. You can see the videos of my podcast guests by just Googling Talking With Painters YouTube. Thanks for listening and I hope you can join me for the next episode of Talking with Painters. Flat sheet of paper is a flat sheet of paper. It's got no energy, there's nothing on it, it doesn't mean anything, it doesn't do anything. But if you put a mark on it, any mark, it doesn't have to be a realist mark, any mark, you somehow then activate the entire surface of the paper. It becomes active. Suddenly, it's no longer a soul mark. It's, it's got something on it which is energetic and somehow energises the space around it. <laughs>